0: Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Howl History back at ya. I'm Derek, that's Chad, and Chad, on your mark, ready, set, let's go. Dance floor pro, I know you know I go psycho when my new joint hits. Just can't sit, gotta get jiggy with it. Will Smith. There it is. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, that's a different one. That's one. There it is. That's a different one. That's state team.
0: <laughs> no, I was doing Will Smith. I was getting jiggy with it. Yeah, yeah, Well you yeah. said there it is, that's a that's Oh, a yeah, boom, song. there, yep, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> how, you, how you been, buddy? Good, how are you? Not too bad. You you got a little trip in last weekend, how'd it go?
1: Uh, good, it was four days of uh, water parks at Wisconsin Dells, so it was, the kids are at an age where you don't have to, like, follow them to the slides, which yeah. is kind of nice. You know, my son's 13, um, the family we went with, they're... they're they have two girls. The one daughter's thirteen, so she and my son have grown up together. And then they have another daughter um, who's younger, but still old, old enough. Of, yeah, yeah. And they kind of go together as a group, so it's kind of nice because we can just kind of sit and talk and catch up and and whatnot. But uh, then on we were there on Thursday night. Um, I was in the hotel, and that you know, like when you're in the hotel, you pull up the the local channels for the hotel mm-hmm. area. Um, we'll have, like, the events that's, that are going on, like the weddings and whatever. And it kept saying, like, card registration. And I was like, card registration? I'm like, I wonder if that's a card show. But I kind of, you know, put it out of my mind. And the next morning, Friday morning, woke up. And um, I was up hours before everybody else every morning. And so I looked it up. And sure enough, there was a card show um, at the hotel we were at, the Kalahari and uh, there was one right there in the convention center within the hotel itself. That's awesome. And so I waited, yeah, waited for my son to get up, and he gets up. I ask him, "Do you want to go to a card show?" He's never been to a card show, and he's like, uh, "Okay." <laughs> and he collects cards, but he kind of didn't know what it, what to expect. He's like, I, "I go to a lot of antique stores and stuff um, on weekends," and he was kind of thinking, this "Is this gonna be one of those deals where I'm right. just following dad around, looking at boring stuff?" Um, so he, he kind of begrudgingly said, yes, because the girls were still asleep and They weren't going to be hitting the pools yet. So we walked over there, and it was huge. It was, like, by far the biggest card show I've ever been to. And I haven't been to a lot of card shows because I, you know, I collected cards seriously as a kid. And then from, like, yeah. the high school on, I maybe bought, like, one or two, you know, select people I'd buy cards yeah. for. Like, yep. I bought – when LeBron came out, I bought a bunch of LeBrons. This is before my son was even born. Thinking, well, if I have a kid someday, I'd like to pass on some LeBron cards and um, that kind of thing. So, but this card show, the the um, convention center area that it was, took place and was fifty two thousand square feet, which was oh wow, which is pretty big. Yeah, um, they they had a show. So the first show they ever had there was just in May, and at that one they had eight hundred tables and people from twenty two different states and so this one was supposed to be another 500 or more tables than may so 1300 tables and they were thinking 28 states so it was uh it was big and so i didn't know what to expect and so we're walking around and we're watching we're, we're looking at cards and he and i are like just scrounging up all the uh, timbrels, you know. We're looking for all the, and people are like, "What are you looking for?" We're like, "Ah, oh, timbrels." And we are like, "Excuse me," we're like, "Who?" <laughs> we're like, "Timbrels." Like, they're like, "Who? Who from the like Kevin Garnett?" And we're like, "Yeah, Garnett," but like, you know, the new guys like Anthony Edwards and Shane McDaniel's, and they knew who Anthony Edwards was, but most of the guys, um, you know, maybe they knew who Shane McDaniel's wasn't, just don't care because yeah, he's not like he hasn't you know, blown up yet. name yet, yeah. And so we were the first day. Um, in the morning when we were there, we were scooping up every Jaden McDaniels and Anthony Edwards that we could find. No, I shouldn't say every Anthony Edwards. There was an Anthony Edwards card there that was five thousand dollars. We didn't buy that one. <laughs> that's uh, a, that's um, a
0: bit much for for my book yeah. right now.
1: Yeah, which seems weird because when we were kids, like no new cards were worth more than like forty, fifty bucks. You know, like
0: no, Grippy not at Jr., all. Junior,
1: that his rookie year, I think that card maybe made it to like twenty five or something. I remember. When I started collecting, it was Jose Canseco and Mark McGuire were the rookies that we were trying mm-hmm. to get, and their cards. You were excited because Canseco was worth five bucks and McGuire was worth four. So now it's like five grand yeah. for a rookie <laughs> for the current rookie. Yeah, yeah. So that kind of was my first eye-opening experience there. And then we are, as you're talking to guys, they're kind of like they're telling you about deals they made. Like one guy had just sold. A card for ten grand, and I don't know who it was. He just told me I just made ten grand off a guy like ten minutes before you walked up. So I was, you know that was crazy. And then we walked by this other guy, and he's making a deal for. We didn't even see what card it was because a bunch of people gathered around, and it was just a glass display case full of cards. But on top of it were just stacks of hundred dollar bills. Gosh. I mean, it was. It's like watching the movie Blow with Johnny <laughs> Depp. And that's. But it was cards. It was the weirdest. And so clearly I've been out of touch with cards, but that experience of going there is a an event that I'll never financially fully recover from <laughs> because, I mean, not from just what I bought there, but just the, it kind of sucked me back in. And right. every day since then I've been on eBay just constantly looking up different things I want. I bought, I've bought two Larry Bird rookies since I got home, two Magic Johnson rookies, I started digging up all my old cards and apparently I had a Magic Johnson rookie I didn't even know I had, so now I have two of those. Um, so it was it's been it's been fun. But we went back that afternoon and there was a LeBron card that had like a piece of his jersey and sure. yeah, sign yeah. and it was his rookie and I just pointed it out to my son and the guy goes, Yeah, that's a million dollar card and I start laughing, he goes, No, I'm serious. He just there's another guy behind the booth. He goes. He just turned down a nine hundred thousand dollar offer on it, and so I was like, "This can't be right." So I went when I got back to the hotel um, that later that night. I looked it up, and it was a um, something called a upper deck exquisite collection rookie parallel LeBron James. Uh, and there's a few different ones, and one of them just sold for like five point eight million Ugh. earlier this year, and it broke the record for the single most expensive card of all time um so it was legit but then so that i was texting you about that yeah right um while i was there but since then since i started going back in all you know neck deep on this i'm there's million dollar cards being pulled all the time i mean it's i was just watching a video one of the apps i found was called uh, sports card investor and that guy does these videos where he's at these different card shows and they were talking about this box of cards a couple years old a guy bought it. A guy sold it to um, this card dealer, sold it to somebody last year for 400 bucks. That guy never opened it. And then this year at the card show, sold it to another guy, a third guy, for $4,000. And that guy opened the box right there. And he pulled out a million dollar card. Oh my God. So it's, it's just it, these insane things. And it's all, all new players. You know, like the. I mean, then a lot of it has to do with getting them graded. And now there's like this big thing. You remember when... Graded cards were like super rare when yeah. we were kids. Like, if you if you knew anybody that had one, you're you know, I, I in fact, I've known a couple of people that had them when I was a kid, but I never knew how they got them. Like, I, I didn't know what that process was. But now it can take like nine months to a year to even get. Well, especially the with the backlog that they have, absolutely right. I th- yeah, haven't they yeah. shut and it now down? Now they stopped taking them. Yeah, yeah, they shut it down. Now that's like PSA shut it down. There are other services. There's one service that I found that will do like a two-day turnaround but it's like 75 dollars a card just to get graded which is totally worth it if you're doing a several thousand dollar card but if you're doing a card that you have no idea if it's like the raw card meaning it's not graded it's like 30 bucks on ebay Yep. well if you're going to spend 75 bucks hoping that it becomes a 300 dollars card it's probably not worth right doing you know then you you're better off just sending it in
0: and Having patience and waiting for it, but man, these prices are crazy. It, I feel like I feel like Doctor Evil with all of them. Except I don't know if I'm Doctor Evil from Austin Powers One or Doctor Evil from Austin Powers Two, where it's like in Number One, he's like one million dollars, and everybody's like that's not enough. And then in, Austin, <laughs> in Number Two, he asked for a million dollars, and I'm like what? So I'm like I could be any like I could be all over the place if it came to actually pricing cards with the knowledge that I have these days. And that was me when they're like, well, I can I can probably
1: work on that or you know I, I can come down on that one if you're interested like a, there was a uh, Edwards card I did end up buying in like a sucker I paid mm-hmm. full sticker price which apparently you never do with these things but I don't I don't know what it was worth I just liked it, it and it was, it was not a super expensive it was like a $60 Anthony Edwards um, Yeah, has a piece of his jersey on it and you know obviously it's a rookie um, but yeah it's like I have no idea how to like bargain with them because I don't know, you what, don't it know what it's but, supposed to be, right? Yeah, I'm doing crash courses all day long. I mean, that same guy from that, that website, Sports Card Collector or Sports Card Investor, one of his YouTube videos, he he meets this kid who's 15. The kid started collecting cards when he was 11, so four years ago, mm-hmm. and he already had a $70,000 card collection in his little case that he was carrying right. around at the card show, and they made a $25,000 trade in just trading you know, three or four cards each. I mean,
0: a buddy and I used to, yeah, we used to ride our bike to Shinders and we'd each buy, you know, a few packs with the the lawn mowing money we'd put together and then go back and open them up and see who got who. And, if I liked a player that he had and he liked a player I had, then we'd probably trade. And then later, maybe one of us would buy a Beckett once every couple months and see how much our, our collection was worth. And be like, oh, remember when you traded me this card? Mine's now worth $10 and yours is worth one. You know, that type of stuff. But yep, it's just blows same, my mind. Same thing, I mean,
1: I have one buddy that um, was consistent, my consistent card trading partner, who I still talk to to this day. His son and my son do karate together. Um, but. We used to have, he had at first a Joe Montana rookie. That at the time was worth like 200 bucks if it was in mint condition. And this one wasn't, but it was, that was the most expensive card in our group, mm-hmm. friend group. That And every one of us owned it at some point in time. <laughs> and I think, his name's Brian. I think Brian ended up with it at the end. Yeah. Like when we stopped, when we all grew trading cards, he was the last one holding it. But I had it for a hot minute. I got it and it's like well you know how i am on fantasy i'm i'm the trade Yep. like i make a thousand trades every season um and that's the way i was with cards when i was a kid too so i had i traded it back to him for a jerry rice rookie which was like 50 dollars, and then like a brad daugherty rookie and this was when the Cavs were in the playoffs against the michael jordan and the bulls and brad Darty was like the hot new thing he was the big man that i mean he was the best player on that Cavs team and uh that card was like skyrocketing all year but it wasn't at $200 yet and literally the following year that card was worth like $4 it yeah. just dropped so I'm like he got definitely got the better out of me but um but yeah it's now these kids are trading $10,000 $15,000 $20,000 cards and it's it's amazing to me i mean so i'm i'm all in now i'm uh, my my son and i are already planning on going to a couple card shows or not card shows card stores this weekend He's been pulling out because he's been collecting cards for a while, but he literally just throws them in this box, and they're all yeah, like, right. Most of them already been in cases. You Zion is the one that's his favorite player. That's a non-Timberwolf player, and he has like before we went to the card show, he had like seven Zions, and Zion's one of the hot new cards. And um, he bought he bought one or two at the card show, and I bought I bought like seven or eight because I had none. Um, but he. The other the other cards that are worth a lot are Trey Young and Luka Doncic or the, they're the other two real big guys of recent memory. And he had a couple Lucas, but last night he went through a box and he comes downstairs and he's like, "Found I found all these." And He pulls out like five Trey Youngs and then he had six Ja Morants and the Jaws cards are worth a lot. I mean, and these are all cards that if he has them graded, yeah, are worth between 600 and $2,000. Um, for like some, some of those Trey Youngs, So Luca Doncic's are even worth more. Um, but he hasn't had, he's only got like two of those. I actually, so what's funny is for Christmas, you know, a lot of extended family would buy him and I, because we're both the only males in the house, <laughs> the same things for Christmas. So we'll get, like, if he gets a box of cards from like my mother-in-law, I will also get a box of cards and I would open them, stick them back in the box and stick it on a shelf somewhere. And he would kind of open them. Throw away the box and just toss the cards on his dresser or whatever. They'd end up in something. And he put like the Zions in a case or whatever. But the Trey Youngs were just loose. So I don't know. They looked still in pretty good shape, but I didn't look it up super closely. But so he's that's all he's doing now. And he's always been into like the investing and stocks and all that. So now that he saw that you can buy and sell cards and invest in them and the trade, like, it was like he never looked at card collecting from that standpoint. So he's, um, <laughs> he's, it's been fun to watch because he's he's into it way harder than I was even at twelve and thirteen
0: years old. Yeah, where'd the fun go with this type of stuff? Like, I look at all of the things that I feel like I would like to get back into if I ever started collecting or ever wanted to start a hobby, and it's like all of the things that I enjoyed as a kid have been taken over by investors. So you can't even get back in for in a, in a casual way anymore.
1: Yeah, well, I will, what I will say about this, though, card collecting, is there's still a purity to it. Um, so a lot of the investors, they have their investment cards and they have their collector cards, mm-hmm. right? And their collector cards are guys that they just want to keep for themselves. So what they'll do is they'll flip investor cards to get the more expensive cards that they want to keep. Um, and then, like, you don't have to get them graded, you know. Like, you could still do it that. But the, what is nice is you don't have like you know when we're kids like you said you run to shinders and you come back with all these packs and you just have cards laying all over your room and they're all over your house and you're whenever you have to clean your room you're tossing them away and whatever and now um like you know those guys might still have a bunch of those too when they're buying all these boxes but they they have like these smaller cases that they're carrying around the card show with these stacks of really good cards and this is for people listening who might be really into car collecting. I probably sound like a complete noob because <laughs> I am. Yeah. Um, but it is it, it there was still that the element of passion behind it. It wasn't like I know what you're saying how things are ruined by the the money and you mm-hmm. know the value of things. But while that that was still a big part of the car collecting now, it, it's there were still people there who were just super excited to see like some rare Michael Jordan card or yeah um a LeBron or Kobe Kobe's another one because you know you're not gonna get any more Kobe cards. Um and so that's a big one that we were watching people, you know, trying to scrounge up and stuff. So I don't know. It was it was a it was eye opening, but it was a ton of fun as well. So Yeah, that'd uh, be awesome.
0: You see any Felton Spencer cards?
1: You know I didn't but I did show you <laughs>
0: even before I went to the
1: card show. Yeah. So like since we've been doing this podcast, like I because I've always had this card collecting thing about me. I buy like the old Timberwolves cards, which, fortunately, because none of them were that good back then, they're super cheap. And so I had just watched the Luke Longley documentary that I told you about. We'll okay. have to do an yep. episode on that for next season. Um, and it's a great documentary, by the way. But after watching that, I was like, man, that guy is, is so cool. So I went and bought his rookie. <laughs> and I got that was in the mail when I got home on Monday. So I was pretty stoked. Score. I'm, I'm ripping through all my you know very uh valuable anthony edwards and jade mcdaniel's rookies and then i pull up my luke longley that i paid a dollar for and another dollar 50 to ship and it's probably worth 35 cents but (laughs)
0: it's
1: it's pretty cool his his mullet's better than their than uh answer mcdaniel's
0: so wait you're telling me the timberwolves drafted another center (laughs) shocking spoiler alert spoiler alert with that though let's head back to 1990 why don't we All right, Chad, we're heading back to 1990. We're going to talk about Felton Spencer. We're going to do a little bit of deep dive. We tried to do a video review uh, to take a look at some of his highlights and see what else we could find on him. Turns out that Felton Spencer is not the world's most interesting player, if that <laughs> surprises you at all. Um, the, the best compliment I can give him is that there were times during while watching him, whether in highlights or full games, that he reminded me a little bit of Nikola Pekovic. Just in the the way that he used his size, the way he attacked rebounding. Um He was, he was of, often the strongest guy on the court. Yep. I would say that. That's one of the reasons why they went after him. They wanted, you know, they wanted that uh that strength and the the presence in the middle, especially when they had gone with Pooh Richardson the year before at point guard to kind of have an inside outside combination. But I mean I mean we can dive deep dive a little bit more into the the similarities between the two and i you know i pulled up back basketball reference to see how they did in different things but but ultimately it was just there wasn't a whole lot there he moved okay for a big guy but nothing that really stood off unless you focused in on him um and he he could make a shot or two but he, you know he wasn't a he wasn't a shack presence down low despite his size he you know he wasn't a 60 percent field goal shooter so it was just kind of uh you know, as as a rookie, you can find some things that you really stood out, or that you would hope would he could build on. But nothing that was really super impressive. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I I
1: tend to agree. I I think he probably, and I love Peck, but I think he probably moved a little bit better than Peck. Mm-hmm. Um, he he wasn't as good a player as Peck. I mean, Peck was Peck could score from more areas on the floor, and even though his sphere of influence was fairly limited there as well, but I mean. Felton was basically a 3 feet and out right <laughs> kind of a score but he did have some hops like so I you know I went through a bunch of different it, the little tapes that you could see on YouTube and there is a um, video a highlight reel of his game against Chicago I don't know if you saw that yep. one Yep and he actually like and I'm sure it was because they were playing Michael Jordan in the Bulls um, but he had a little bit more of a spring to his step than in that highlight package from that one game than he did all the other clips I watched of him um, so he actually moved pretty well in that game but again they were all like put back dunks um, boxing out like he, he tended to do a decent job boxing out but his footwork you know like if, if uh, he was boxing out like Will Perdue if Will Perdue would have just spun on him mm-hmm. he would have had an easy dunk uh, several times because Felton would, would tended to turn his body so that his, he sort of had his hip on uh, Will Perdue's back um and so it made it it would have made it a very easy spin move, but uh, but he, he I mean that is what I mean even Will Purdue, as big as Will Purdue was, Felton Spencer was was bigger. I mean he wasn't as tall, but he was much, you know, thicker. Um so he was I think that the league, you know, by this this point they already knew Shaq was. He wasn't in the NBA yet, but the league was starting to to go big you know this was the run on big players um and so i mean centers were still the thing
0: if there was a center available you went with it which is why felton spencer ended up going so high in the first place you know i just listened to uh the new ringer pod or not i guess not the new ringer podcast but the what if podcast on the bill simmons uh book of basketball podcast about len bias so they had seven episodes about you know what happened with that whole story and where it would have gone and you know we don't don't need to deep dive into len bias because that's not what i'm you know what i'm driving towards here but Uh, You know, Brad Doherty went number one in that draft, even with how talented Len Bias was and how, you know, how everybody considered him to be, you know, a Jordan equal at the time coming out of Maryland. And but, you know, you just went center if there was a center to take, you know, especially number one, you went center. And it's the same thing with Hakeem going over Jordan and even Sam Bowie going over Jordan at number two. It was, you know, all throughout the 80s. If you could get a center, you went center. And it's, you know, that really helped Spencer get drafted where he did. It did, and even you. I found a couple different draft grades from different local
1: papers around the country. Um, one of which, like, was in a Utah paper, and they even gave the Wolves a B draft grade for taking Felton Spencer where they took him. So it wasn't like it's sort of revisionist history for everybody. That, you know, kind of bag on the Wolves for oh, just all these failed draft picks. But at the time when they took the the players, it was the same players that these other teams would have drafted had they been in the same. Spot as the wolves, right. so it wasn't like some crazy. wasn't like the wolves passing on Steph Curry twice. Like that was an immediate thing people recognize as being right. A little no, it was there. more like
0: Derek Williams. Um, you know where everybody thought Derek Williams was a consensus correct. number two, and everybody would have taken him. At yep, that or spot. Michael
1: Beasley, or yep, exactly. Yeah. It was more one of those types of situations. So it wasn't uh it w- that wasn't a a failed pick by the wolves. It was just a failed to live up to the expectations on the of the player and and that was that would be the other thing I'd say about Felton was similar to many big men of that era they he just didn't play with a lot of you know energy you know a lot of those big men they were the dominant player from the time they hit the court in sixth grade Mm -hmm. all the way until they hit the NBA and all of a sudden in the NBA they were no longer the best clear-cut best player in the you know on the floor and so they didn't have to try as hard their entire life whereas you know you look at the the smaller guys who come into the league, you know, I want to I want to use like a Nate Robinson as an example, or uh, let's go back to that era, Muggsy Bogues or Spud Webb. Those guys succeeded because they had to play so much harder than everybody else because they're five foot seven and five foot three. You know, when you're Felton Spencer and you're seven one, two 265 pounds, you're one of the biggest guys in the league already coming in, and you know you can just kind of get lazy and get content with your skill set because you have this ability to overpower people at every level and all of a sudden you once you hit the NBA that's no longer the case and, you know and there's lots every other big guy even if they're similar demeanor as you are just as big just as strong just as fast have similar skill sets and so only the truly great ones like the Patrick Ewing's Akeem Olajuwon's David Robinson's those other guys of that
0: era really stood out yeah and you know I one thing that kind of stands out when I take a look at felton Spencer's stats and the rest of his career and you know where it ends up going like the one thing that we kind of need to start focusing on here as we start working through these first few years of the timberwolves franchise history is that there was coaching malpractice done because just like pooh richardson felt the best year of felton spencer's career might have been his rookie year like mm-hmm. he came out he played 81 games which is the most he ever plays he has the highest PER of his career. He has the highest win shares per 48 of his career, except for the final two years in New York, where he only he plays a total of 50 games over those two years. So this was literally the most productive game, productive season of his entire career. The same way that we saw with Pooh last year, he came out especially the second half, and he had a great second half of the season to the level of Tim Hardaway as a rookie. And you know we're we're going to keep working our way through this season and in the future seasons, but. Anybody that's been following the Wolves over these last three decades knows like that didn't go anywhere. He didn't improve on that. He didn't build on top of those skills. He wasn't given the opportunity to continue to grow. And, I mean, as we were just talking about earlier, not only did Felton Spencer have the best year of his career but and then dip off a little bit in his talent or his skills or you know whatever it happened to be, his growth, but the Wolves then went out and took another center in the first round the following year. So they didn't even give him the opportunity to continue to grow as a st- as a starting center in the league. So maybe you know, maybe they saw something different, but that you know, they really didn't take advantage of any of the talent and or care about building up those young players in this frost on this roster. Yeah, and part of that's
1: probably the just this, this, you know, um, unstableness within the organization. You know, you're changing coaches every year and stuff. So. Yeah, they they draft Felton Spencer. Well, then, as we'll see, there's gonna be a coaching change before the the following year when they're drafting another big man. So that that also probably plays a part of it as well. But I, you know, I think you're right. I mean, especially centers in the '90s were probably a lot like quarterbacks in football, where you can take a guy that's highly touted coming out of college and a clear-cut top ten pick, and if you don't put them in the right system, right, they're gonna be mediocre players because they, it's, it's not like a guard who can just go one-on-one with his defender. You know, when you're a big man, you have to rely on the guards to get you the ball in the post before you can even do that. And if you're not showing signs, it's kind of a chicken and egg thing. If you're not showing the ability to take over stretches of the game, the guards aren't going to get you the ball. And if guards aren't going to get you the ball, you can't take over for small stretches of the game. So. I I think it just kind of compounds the issue you know and then you have coaches changes but then you have the player just sort of like okay well you know these these guys aren't using me the way I'm used to being used and so I'm just gonna I'll just come out and do my job there's no passion there there's no energy and they just kind of are going through the motions and that kind of seemed to be what happened with with Felton Spencer throughout that entire you know his entire run with the the Wolves but you're right his rookie year was his
0: I think it was easily his best year of his career. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the numbers, it, it, you expand them out to, you know, 36 minutes, you know, what his averages would have been if he got normal starter minutes. He, w- he was at a 10.11 rebound, two blocks, you know, and he shot 50, 51% from the floor, 72% from the line. So he you know, it was good numbers, good efficiency. He wasn't taking a lot of shots. His usage rate was under 12%. So he used under 12% of the, the possessions while he was on the floor, but that's because he was kind of the last option with. With Poo and Tyron Corbin and uh, Tony Campbell, you know, and the the, sh- the shooters that they had developed, especially from the year before, so he wasn't leaned on to be an offensive presence or to be a go-to guy. But you know, he had a you know, well. And their big their big uh, move the year prior was getting in Randy Brewer. Yep.
1: So and I mean, in, in the highlight package I watched from that one Bulls game, they were playing together. I mean, that that couldn't have been done a ton back then, where you had a seven foot three. Center and a seven foot one, two hundred sixty five pound power forward right. on the floor at the same time against Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan. You know, it was, it was uh, an interesting lineup to say the least. Yeah,
0: you know, and Spencer came out and his his rebounding percentage from his rookie year was you know almost eighteen percent, which you know I mentioned Peck earlier as a comparison. We all think of Peck as a, an amazing rebounder, except you know Peck did a lot of his damage on the offensive rebounding end of the floor. But the highest total rebounding percentage Peck ever had was sixteen point four, so he never reached. Where you know grabbing the number of rebounds that that Spencer did even in his rookie year, and you know he was he was a good banger. He was a good big man to get down there and you know throw his body around. And he needed to cut down on the fouls a little bit because he averaged six fouls per thirty six minutes, so he wasn't going to ever be able to play 36 minutes.
1: But how, how often? Yeah, yeah. How often is that the case with big men coming into the NBA for yep. the first time? mean look at just this summer league with Nate Knight. That was his biggest flaw of the summer. In fact. I would argue his only flaw. He, he was pretty much perfect what you would want to see for a big man for this Wolves roster, except for he tended to get into some severe fall trouble. Towns is another one. I mean, yeah. especially early in his career, you know, he was always in fall trouble. And so, yeah, big men, it's its an adjustment coming from the college game, what you can get away with in college versus what you can get away with in the NBA. And that, that holds true in 1991 as it
0: is in 2021 and you know what? we we ragged on the wolves a little bit earlier but you know maybe we do have to put a little bit of the the fault on on spencer himself because like you said it big men come into the league they do have trouble committing fouls early on except spencer kind of got worse every year <laughs> you know he started out at 5.8 power or personal fouls fouls per 36 minutes and he went up to 5.9, 6.8. He was never below 5. That was the lowest of his career. And he got up to 9.3 in 98, 99. So he just was a it was a hacker, man. He just went out there to throw his body around and try to get in the way. So um, I don't know if... Well, I, I watched
1: a little bit. It's, it's, some of the highlight reels I watched were from when he was in Golden State. Um, and I think in Utah a little bit. I was watching one of those. And what I saw was he was a little bit more out of shape than he was when he was with the Wolves. A little heavier. And so my guess is that he was just like swiping down on guys blowing past him and picking up a lot of cheap balls that way um, just because he wasn't in shape, wasn't fit enough to kind
0: of step into the lane and, yeah. and take a proper stop on it. Well, either way, we have Felton Spencer as our center. You could see during times of his rookie year that the Wolves might have thought they had something going, especially with Brewer getting up there in age. You know, Pooh had a great rookie year. Spencer had a very solid rookie year himself as a center, and they had a few wings that they were proud of. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll take a look at the rest of the roster, how they, you know, moved on from season one to season two. And then like Chad uh, teased, there's, there might be a little bit of turbulence, a little bit of uh, staffing changes moving forward this season. So we'll, we'll get back to that in the, a future episode, in a future Uh, segment of 90s notes so now back to your regularly scheduled programming all right chad we're back we wanted to uh take a little bit of time this week to come at you with some ideas that we would have to improve the nba Rule changes, or regulation changes, or just suggestions—things that we think would be would be better, would make the league either more fun, more entertaining, more enjoyable to watch, uh, more have have a better competitive balance, whatever it happens to be. I think we each have four suggestions, four ideas for uh, what we'd like to do with the league if you made us a czar or CEO or god of the NBA for a day. So, uh, Chad, let's see if we have any that match up. We haven't shared these yet, so we're gonna. We're gonna riff on each other as we as we go back and forth. But yeah, I want you go first? Let me know what's your, what your first. Uh, let's go uh, least impactful to most impactful.
1: Uh, all right. Well, my least impactful one would be just to count hockey assists. Right. Okay. So you're you're counting the pass that leads to the assist. Um. I I I've always wanted to do that to count because well, one point guards are traditionally my favorite position on the court. Um. I love players like Ricky Rubio because he would have. Thrive in that sort of um, a stat coning, right? Mm-hmm. Like I don't think guys like Rubio get the credit, the full credit they deserve because, you know, if, if they make a pass that's a open assist and the other guy makes another pass because it might be a slightly better shot. Um, Rubio is the type of player that you could see that coming from him. So that's, that's number one. I think it would help us evaluate those types of players on a, on a better Scale than what we evaluate them today, and I know some people kind of count those anyway. But like, I want it to be officially counted. Um, and then the other reason why I want to count those stats is because they, the league has become so much of a one-on-one driven game, where you know you just have your lead ball handler dribbling the ball, everybody else clears out, and then they make a move and drive to the hoop. This would, I think, just help some players who are focused on their personal stats maybe. Be more willing to be, become more willing passers and i think overall it would, it would kind of help purify the game make it a little bit more uh, traditional uh, make it a little bit more of the way the european style plays i don't want it to be completely european style i like our above the rim game i like our physicality in the nba better than sort of the euro or world league play but i do like the the way
0: those teams share the ball better than our nba counterparts um so now, if you go to NBA.com, they do have a stat for secondary assists. And I don't know necessarily if that's exactly a hockey assist. The glossary, if you look at the glossary, it says secondary assist equals secondary assist. So that's super helpful. Um, mm-hmm. But if we, if I sort but it.
1: I don't think it's like an official stat. Like I think it's, so yes, I mean, different people track yeah. it, um, but it's
0: like. I don't think it's counted. You know, like hockey, it's like an official right. stat. It is like an official stat. But yeah, NBA.com has something. I don't, if if it is hockey assists, then the top five in the league last year would have been Dennis Schroeder, uh, John ja Morant, Stephen Curry, Paul George, and Trey Young. So uh, lots of point guards and a forward that plays point guard sometimes. So uh, yeah, yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. But I, no, I, I, like I like it. it. I, like I like crediting that and giving, and giving more recognition to it as well. I like that much better than screen assists. Right, right. So, all right. <laughs> my uh, my least impactful one, and this is strictly for an enjoyment of a viewer, is I believe that sleeves should be banned. Any any okay. sh- any shirt that has sleeves on it should go away. Whether it's an undershirt or a jersey with sleeves. Okay, so you're
1: talking. Not the shirt
0: sleeves, not like yep. the
1: sleeves that start from the wrist and go up. Not the no, no, bronze no.
0: style. If you have, I think the just the rule should be there needs to be skin visible between your jersey and whatever is on your arm. So the the and the, no, about, the, Nasri the Jared cool. Culver undershirts, like they gotta go. Your NBA player is now, I don't care how skinny you think you are, you're you're not Corey Brewer. <laughs> Put you know take the shirt off, wear your jersey. If you want to have a padded undershirt or a padded you know, tank top underneath your jersey the way that, you know, Allen Iverson always did so he could take more of a beating and hit the floor more often, go for it. But the the sleeved undershirts need to go away. What about, like, the compression, like, pants the that leggings? everybody's wearing all that... You, yeah. know, you know, they don't bother me as much as they used to. I remember when I worked for the 76ers, Samuel Dallenberry used to be one of the first ones who wore them, and he just... I mean, he was 6'11", and he probably weighed, like, 175, and they just looked like the most ridiculous things, and I, maybe they just weren't as in style back then or they weren't made as well and and they but they don't bother me as much now as they used to especially since they've become much more mainstream but just the shirts they they got to go that's that they would do be my bother first me change. a little bit the shirts
1: bother me a little bit in a way that what bothers me about them is less the shirt themselves but the the stance the leagues allowed those which looks less professional to me mm-hmm. um, because it looks like some other a piece of equipment that, like for example, remember the ninja headbands, yeah. Like the Andre Drummond the, used the to wear it. You wear could it. tie it on the back. Lots of Beverly, yeah. Beverly used to wear them. Um, a lot of guys would wear them, but those got banned by the league, which, you know, I didn't really care one way or the other about them. But I find it weird that those would be banned, but like the undershirts are still allowed because they're both sort of taken away from the uniforms themselves. Right. Because now you have like. You know, you have like this nice uniform, and then you have like this either like a Nas case. He always wears the white undershirt that looks that yeah, it looks it ridiculous. Looks like,
0: yeah, yeah, you, yeah. You're not you're not so. in college anymore. Move forward. You're a man. <laughs> it, uh, by the way, happy birthday, Nas. It's his birthday today. So I'm sorry I'm <laughs> taking away your undershirt, but it's time to grow up. All right, what's number two for you, Chad?
1: Ah, uh, see the next one that's least. The rest of these start to affect the game a little bit, but I would have flopping falls changed to flagrant falls. Okay. To the point where they would have the same suspension penalties once they accumulate enough flagrants, um, and I would also add like the leg kickouts on jump shots
0: mm-hmm.
1: to draw falls. I would uh, that would also count as a flagrant. And conversely, when defenders are pressing to get up underneath the shooter before the shooter lands, which those can be. Yeah. cult flagrants today um but it just it's sort of you know at the transgression of the the referees but I, to me they'd be automatic flagrants and i would just call them shame <laughs> and i would i whenever a player commits one i would have like the lady from game of thrones just shame yeah shame playing the because it it's you know it's one of those things maybe it's because i'm in my 40s where it, i feels like it's ruined the game because i mean you know when you can hear like the shacks and the the Berkleys on TNT talking about how soft the players are. I mean, it's kind of hard to argue when you have those types of things going on on right. the court. You know, it annoys me when you ever have the old guys talking about how they're tougher in their day. Um, on all sports, when they when they do that, but in that that situation, they're
0: they're kind of right because those kind of calls drive me nuts. Yeah, they're Non-calls. just the worst. I hear you. No, I'd be all for that. And take anything that makes the game less fun to watch and just penalize it severely till it goes away. Exactly. Yeah. No, I gotcha. All right, number two for me, this is It's it's more serious than sleeves, but I don't think it would make a huge impact except for the fact that I think that if a dunk is converted, there should be 0% chance that it could be called for an offensive foul. So if you're able to get the ball through the hoop and your hand hits the rim, then I think... No matter where you took off from, where the guy was standing, I don't think it should be able to be an offensive foul, and it should be reviewable, whatever it happens to be. But if you want to take a, if you want to jump from the free throw line and a guy is standing seven feet away from the basket and you go right through his chest, you know the the Tom Chambers or whatever, where he put his knee on the guy and use it as a leverage. Yep. I'm like, if you convert the dunk, it's legal. Like that's that's my that would be my whole rule. Man,
1: Zion would be like MVP. Yeah, I'd I'd take it. Who's... Yeah, who, who's going to stop him? Giannis would, would still be really, I mean, really...
0: maybe it creates more, like, a, more of a risk for injury-inducing plays if guys are always trying to jump over each other, but I'd love to see some of these guys try it more often rather than doing the, well, the spin would... move, flip up, you know, finger roll from the side because they don't want to create the contact or whatever it happens to be.
1: Right, and it would balance out, you know, because right now the game's so slanted towards long-range shooters. Mm-hmm. That would help balance out, sort of more of the the big man and the dunkers, right? Right. Because who's gonna who's gonna block like Embiid in the post or you know?
0: Yeah, I mean, and, so Embiid's already in the restricted area, so he's not gonna get too many charge calls because he's not taking off from outside of the circle. Uh, right. Right. But it it would benefit you know the Zion's or you know, those big be, wings, a young shoot. LeBron, a Dwayne Wade, you know, if they're jumping from, you know, an Anthony Edwards, if they're taking off from mm. seven, eight feet every time and they're just trying to go through guys, you know, I'd love to see. You know, what would that have done for Andrew Wiggins if he could have just tried to go through guys rather than always worrying about, you know, the contact and if he might get called for a foul or whatever. Like, you can use the off arm. If you can convert the dunk, use the off arm. Put it in their throat. Just mu- yeah. mush their face. And- Move them out of the way. <laughs> Turn it into slam ball or whatever it was, the trampoline game. So What, what about... uh? Using the uh,
1: the defender to ele- help elevate over. Converted dunk. If you can use. Yep. Yep. As long as you convert it, you can, you can do as it. As long as you convert it, you can do it.
0: I might be all dunk then if I get somebody short enough. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't help me. <laughs> so if, if that person that's short enough is a chair, and that chair is a series of chairs leading up to a, like a five foot stance, then maybe. But- like, a, Like the crate challenge? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm I'm sad that I know what that is. I know, but it's blowing up. Yep. No, that's my number two. What's number awesome. three for you? So this one is
1: probably more to add more fun into the game. Okay. And it's a little bit NBA Jam esque. I would add two four point shots on each side of the court. Okay. It would just be inside the half, inside the half court for mm-hmm. each team, um, and it would only come into effect in the final two minutes of each game and then it basically would be that's the spots would just light up or however you want to do it but yeah it would be from you know essentially where Damian Leatherd hit the series clincher against OKC two years ago um it would from be like, around that range
0: where like the arena logo typically is or something right right it. yeah you know a
1: couple a couple steps in from the half court um yep. just to so what I would probably do is I would start off Try it out in the All-Star game. Um, see how that goes. Mm-hmm. And then add it to the play-in tournament. And then eventually kind of work it into the, the yep. regular season. Because I'm, I'm not... I think it'd be fun to see how it works. I'm not 100% convinced that I'd want to keep it forever. So that's why I want to kind of phase it in. To hmm. See if it's, it's worth doing. Because there's already too much advantage for the Steph Curry's, Trey Young's, Damian Lillard type players now. Um, but... What I would like to see from a team perspective is if you're down by eight with 45 seconds to go, it's a lot easier to come back with two four-point shots than it is for yep. some combination of two threes and a two or you a know, bunch of falls. And, and, then, and then you can take the – I think it would speed up the end of the game because you're not – you have another strategy you can work in rather than just the follow them, hope they miss a free throw, and you're trading at worst twos for threes. Um, hopefully one for three kind of thing. Instead you're you launching four pointers. Um you know, so I think it, it it would it would speed up the end of games, which is the worst part of the NBA right now. But I don't wanna change anything else there. I don't wanna like say you can't follow people because that is part of the strategy. If you're gonna have a guy that can't make free throws, which is a fundamental skill to the game, well, that's too bad. You if you yep. can't make free throws, you should be able to get packed. Um so this would be a way to You know, interject another strategy without changing the fundamentals.
0: Yeah, I could see it being used a lot. You know, for the first minute and a half of those two minutes, you know, if if guys want to take those very low percentage shots, the defense might let them do it. Um, You know, in an effort to you know to climb their way back, and you know, there's probably a very good chance either going to miss everything and go out of bounds, or be a long rebound, or whatever happens to be. But yeah, I don't, I don't, I guess I wouldn't expect there to be too many like buzzer beating four point shots because the other the defense is going to know exactly where that spot is too they just have to defend the spot more so than defending the guy so mm-hmm. um i wouldn't expect that to be the case but yeah I, th- I could absolutely see that being a thing where you know even if they ha- if it forces them to draw a defender that far out well that's um, what i mean they, it opens yeah. up
1: other th- ways of scoring yeah even if it's not the four point shot itself yeah. because now the i mean that's the other part is you know and i didn't add this as a thing a rule change but expanding the size of the court because it's like some of those guys you just set their shoe on the corner three
0: yeah i bet their fit. shoe
1: touches a three-point line and the out-of-bounds line i mean it, like guys are bigger today than they were you know in the 90s for example on average and the court's the same size and actually the three-point line's out further so there's less room on those sides
0: um so it'd be worth you know expanding the size of the court might be worth doing as well no i hear that absolutely All right, I like that one. Uh, My third one is that I would get rid of max contracts if I were in charge of CBA negotiations. And I've probably brought this up before, I can't remember, except my, my opinion on that is that that's really the only way that you're ever going to be able to give players the earning potential that they fight for while also removing the ability for super teams to form. And I know that there could always be... An owner that was so rich that it didn't matter but if LeBron James is walking around from team to team over this past decade and he's not limited to 30 35 even 40 million dollars on his contract under a salary cap that's 120 million allowing for others guys to fit in around him if he could walk in and the team you know if he had a team that said we'll pay you a hundred million dollars of our hundred and twenty million dollar cap whatever it happens to be and we'll fill out the rest of the, the roster Maybe LeBron has enough earning potential, otherwise, in other ways, to make it worth walking away from that to go to the Lakers and make thirty-five or forty million, so that he can play with Anthony Davis. I just want the decision to be harder. I want, you know, I want the top ten players in the league to really be paid what they're worth, at least in terms of the revenue that they bring to their teams and they bring to the league, and make roster building a, a tougher decision rather than just. You know, a max contract shouldn't just be the best player on all 30 teams or the two best players on all 30 teams because that's just how it works out because they're capped and you're never going to get there. A max contract should be what is a team literally allowed to pay them with trying to roster 13 or 14 other guys on their team at minimum contracts. You know, so put these guys up against each other, you know, year after year and make it a pride thing to say I'm the highest paid player in the game the same way that it is for you know, quarterbacks in football or players in baseball, whatever, you know, getting that highest contract is always, you know, a source of pride for these guys. And they keep fighting year after year. It's always a different highest paid quarterback in history or whatever it happens to be. So um, I'd get rid of max contracts. That would be my biggest step that I think would make a difference in team building and roster building moving forward.
1: It's interesting because so my fourth one is similar i'm trying to solve part of what you're trying to solve Mm -hmm. i'm not trying to solve for get getting the top players paid more because to be honest i'm I'm okay with that part of it because i think the way they get paid more is through all the endorsement deals they get right and and that wouldn't be there for them if those other players weren't there to give them a league you know because really the league is really only as strong as your lower end players yeah the stars you know like LeBron can't just go out and play, you, me, and three other guys, and be compelling to draw on the endorsement deals and stuff he gets. He needs he needs the uh, like legit competition, and so I, I'm I'm okay with that part of it. Um, I would be more worried so that in that sort of if there was no max contracts, that it would be like baseball is, where the big market teams are the ones always then that are buying those players. Like I, I, would be worried that it'd be the adverse reaction to what you're trying to solve for because, like Golden State, for example, is another one. They're in, a, they're not in one of the biggest markets, or they're not in the biggest market, but in one of the bigger ones. But they also have, you know, TV rights and, and different things going on that help them be able to just blow through the max, mm-hmm. uh, or the the tax threshold every single season and it doesn't phase them. Kind of like the Yankees do in baseball. Um, so I would worry, you know, the Lakers might not be one of those teams that can do that because their ownership doesn't have as deep of pockets as a lot of the other ownerships around the league. Um, but in that case, they still have the, the, the desirable sort of atmosphere. They're on the West Coast, warm weather, all that kind of stuff. Um, so what I did to combat that with my fourth idea is I would create, almost the reverse of what you did, but I would create a Superbird rights contract. And it would be similar to full bird, but what you and you have in similar to full bird rights in the sense that the player would have to play for three seasons with the team in order to be able to even qualify, yep. right? Yep. And then the team can re-sign that player above that of any other team in the league, same as today. But the major difference would be there would be a kicker clause that would allow that player to get raises if another player in the league at a similar position or maybe at all, depending mm-hmm. on how the contracts written up was to get a raise so like let's say Joel Embiid gets a contract this year starting at 33 million per but then Jokic gets a deal next year at 35 million per well Embiid's contract automatically increased by two million dollars a year next year yeah because Jokic got more right and this would be indirectly helping those top players get paid more right because if if one player at their position gets paid more then it helps those other guys at that that position Um, but what would happen for those teams that? kept them is they would only, their on the books would only count for what their original contract counted for. They would still have to pay the, the difference right. but it wouldn't negatively impact their, their salary cap. cap, right? Sure. And then the reason, and then the other kicker for this would be the only way that player can sign a Superbird deal is if it becomes, they can't, there can be no trade requests or demands. if If they hold out, like there would be Severe penalties on it. Like the the only way they can get that money would be like a full commitment to stay with that team. Yeah. Unless the team decided to move him on, right? And you know there'd be a lot of wrinkles you'd have to add to, to make that work because essentially today the contracts are guaranteed. You know, binding. They, they the only way they can really the players get out of them is they just don't show up to camp. They hang out in strip right. clubs like James Harden <laughs> until tell the team is forced to trade them, but. And this would be incentivized by... Like, they're already getting all the money, right? So there wouldn't be a money question there then because they're getting as much as the other guys in their field. Um, but my my whole point what I'm trying to solve for is the smaller market teams or the teams that are in less desirable geographic regions, i.e. the Timberwolves fit into both these, when they would be on a more level playing field then because they can keep their players... So teams like the Lakers... Who haven't really developed talent in a long, long time? You know, I mean, they developed Kobe, but they've whiffed on most of their draft picks ever since. And even Kobe, they traded for, but it was essentially their their draft pick. And so, what the Lakers do is every three or four years, they just wipe off their books, they trade away all their crappy contracts, and throw in a couple, you know, first round picks that are going to end up being really late first round picks. And then they wipe their books clean and they go and sign out every big free agent. For you know consecutive summers, right, and then they build their super team, and it's kind of what Brooklyn did. There's a, you know the big market teams can do that. It's, there's that'll never be a strategy that the Wolves can employ or Portland can employ or you know San Antonio for that matter. You know this is right now the league is set up to solely help the Lakers, the Nets, the Knicks, who still manage to screw it up, Miami. Teams like that who have either a desirable geographic location or a desirable, you know, big market location where they can make money else outside of that. So um, trying to come up with a rule that would limit that from happening by allowing those smaller market teams to be able to continue paying for the players they invest in. So and it, it, the only way the small market team benefits is if they do a good job scouting and drafting, right? It doesn't pay for the Wolves to super bird Andrew Wiggins because right. that only would hurt you. Um, but it's sort of like the super max now. But the super max now is really just a max deal now. It's not even, there's, it's not even really a thing because everybody gets it.
0: <laughs> well, see, if, if I were to go in this direction, and this isn't my fourth idea, so don't count it against me. But I like the idea of not counting the difference between the max and the super max against the cap for a team. If you, because I don't think a team like Portland should be penalized for Damian Lillard having been there, been there his whole career for eight years, or the right, same with right. Kemba Walker in Charlotte. You know, they traded him to Boston because they just they weren't going to pay him above the normal max, and he was eligible for the super max. So Bradley Beal in Washington. You know, as much as you dislike Russell Westbrook, the fact that he was in Oklahoma City that whole time. Oh, no, they, I- yeah. So I think that teams should be there should be more of a reward at least from a team building perspective to teams for having these guys stick around for so long and to be a place where a player wants to stay and put more of the pressure on these billionaire owners. I mean, this last week we saw the 76ers ownership, you know, a, a collection of private equity billionaires come through release, like let go of like six scouts and Scott Rego, who's their equipment manager who had been there longer than, you know, he was there when I got there in 2004. So they just went through to like trim costs and they're sitting on their billions probably making hand over fist during the the epidemic right now you know and they're still walking through and just making you know putting the pressure on everybody else to try to make up the you know make a revenue or you know profit every year so put more pressure on the owners and then if if they decide not to play the super max then it's on them then it's because the owners just cheap not because the the cap building or the team building situation wouldn't allow you to actually pay it so uh, whatever yeah, that's you know. i mean that's
1: almost like exactly what i was trying to solve here right with the it it not the difference would not count against the team because you know you, you I do want to reward like I, I as much as like let's say Lillard's top choice was coming to the Wolves I would still kind of feel bad right. getting Damian Lillard just because he belongs in Portland but like that, that's his team that's his franchise I mean you know they were talking about it on one of the sports shows recently like even though Lillard's career is not even complete he still more synonymous with that franchise than even like Clyde Drexler was or, you know, and, and when the Drexler, Terry Porter, all those guys, and they were in the finals, you know, yeah. against the bulls. I still, when I, and I was a Portland fan then, like I was rooting for Portland over Chicago back then, but I, I still see that organization now as Damian Lillard's team. Like that's how much he's meant to that team. And there's not a lot of modern era players. So you could say, you could say LeBron and Cleveland, um, but there's not a lot of modern era players where you can say, yeah, they're a team. Yep. That's that guy's team, you know? Yeah. So I think uh, rewarding that would be uh, a smart way to go. Yeah. But the the
0: league, I don't know that the league wants to, right? I don't. They like to see the transactions in the player movement. It causes offseason interest. And and I get that. And they
1: want to see their stars in those, on those teams. They don't want to see their stars in Minnesota. I mean, look, it's, it's no coincidence that every, every time the Wolves talk about or every time the national team to talk about the, um, the Wolves, mm-hmm. it's about talents leaving.
0: Yep. No, I hear you. All right. My final idea, we're going to try to get you guys out of here in, in less than an hour. So you only got a couple minutes left. But uh, my final idea is, and I'm not the first person to bring this up, but I, I've loved it for years, is that I think they should bring in a Premier League relegation for the last the last place team move them down to the g league bring the the g league champions up to the nba and if you come in last place you lose access to your draft pick you go out you have to go play in the g league for a year you bring your full roster you somehow have to pay them even though you're making g league uh revenue and you know really supercharge that fight at the bottom of the league you know you you don't want to tank because if you accidentally fall into last place, whether that's due to injury or it's due to your own incompetence, you're you're not going to get NBA revenues for a year. And uh, you know, I think it would bring more interest to uh, the G League and get that more notoriety, especially with the the NB, NBA Ignite or the G League Ignite team down, down there. They would never be able to move up because I think their players aren't eligible to be playing in the league right now. But um, the other 28 teams would be perfectly eligible. You win the G League championship, you move up to the NBA for a season, and. Uh, whether or not you had a an agreement with an NBA team with players moving back and forth, tough. There, those are NBA players now, and they're going to get paid NBA salaries. So, uh, I think there should be more of a penalty for coming in last. I like it. The only
1: thing that would be an issue is the G League teams are owned by the same owners that own the NBA right. teams. yep.
0: So, like, say Minnesota, yep. Glenn Taylor drops. would have two teams if the Wolves, or if the Iowa Wolves made it in. Yeah, I get that. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, fig- so figure out a way around that, though, and absolutely. I, I do
1: like the Premier League style. That is yeah. cool. Uh, it would almost be like if they expanded the NBA to other countries. You could do it that way You with could those, do something those like teams.
0: that, yep. Yep. Or if you did expansion but you didn't want to dilute the, the talent pool too much, you could go that way, too. But. Um. hmm you know, figure out something even with the first pick, maybe the first that you're still in lottery, you can still get a draft pick, but then that player has a chance of playing in the G league next year. So Zion might've had to play in the G league for a year. If the Pelicans were, you know, had been the worst team when they got awarded that lottery pick. I don't know, but I think, I just think there has to be more of a penalty. So that would be my biggest shakeup. That'd be my fourth idea. Uh, Something I'd be, I'd be behind. It's probably too many uh, pitfalls and too many things I'm not considering that would actually destroy the league because of that decision. But uh, I don't believe so. I think I'm a genius, and I, I don't think I could ever be wrong. So, All right, Chad, we're going to get out of here in less than an hour. We've got uh, 20 seconds left, so any le- any last words you want to leave us with? No, I'll look forward to uh, next time. All right, we'll see if we have any Wolves news to come back and talk about. Otherwise, we'll find something else fun. Uh, this is Derek, that's Chad, this is Howell History. Thank you, guys. Talk to you soon. See you, man.